0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode 355 of your Tick Bootcamp podcast. Title of today's interview is Tick Report, an interview with Professor Stephen Rich. My name is Richard Johanneson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Folks, Professor Stephen Rich is a professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst campus, and he is doing some really interesting research in the Lyme world. He is an applied researcher rather than a curiosity researcher, meaning he's taking his research out of the lab and into the world and coming up with very practical tools that we can use to protect ourselves from ticks and Lyme disease. And he's really interesting from the standpoint of the myths that are often portrayed in the Lyme disease world because he's both an expert in malaria and malaria transmission from mosquitoes and ticks and Lyme disease transmission. And he was able to very clearly define why the myth that Lyme disease can be transmitted through mosquitoes is actually a false myth.
1: But Rich, a lot of people listening to this podcast are wondering how can Dr. Rich help me and my chronic Lyme disease journey? And that's something that blew me away, not only his knowledge about everything you just described, but his research pertaining to the white-tailed deer and how he found with his team that the blood of the white-tailed deer actually kills the Lyme bacteria. And this information is going to be very powerful to research potential treatments and preventatives when it comes to Lyme disease. He also goes into great detail about these unknown strains of Lyme disease and how in his lab he's able to identify that there are strains of Lyme that nobody in the world simply knows exist and how he's going to be able to help people identify these strains in ticks and use this research to advance the development of treatments for Lyme disease. Professor
0: Rich's lab is also focusing on repellents and, and contact repellents versus spatial repellents, and they are trying to develop some tools that will allow us to be spatially protected from ticks and mosquitoes so that we can go and enjoy our time in nature without coming in contact with these disease vectors. So folks, without further ado, we're really excited to introduce to you Professor Stephen Rich and Tick Report. Professor Stephen Rich, welcome to the Tick Camp Podcast. Thanks for having me. We're Really excited to have you! And so, let's begin first with uh, your recent celebrity. Uh, if you didn't know it, you've become uh, very well known in the chronic Lyme disease community, and uh, and as a result of, of some recent uh, research that you published, so let's let's start there with um, how it feels to be uh, you know not just an academic, but also now a, a bit of a celebrity in the uh, Lyme disease community. <laughs> so, I should emphasize that that work was done by a graduate student in the lab. I definitely oversaw it, but I want to recognize
2: Pat Pearson for his contributions and largely his idea to to perform this experiment. I instantly was supportive of the idea. And the reason being that when I go out and give outreach talks, I go out and tell people about ticks and tick-borne diseases, and I explain this very complex cycle that involves mice where there's a zoonotic disease transmission, but then there's deer that are important to the ticks but not important to the transmission of the pathogen of the Lyme pathogen and people invariably at the end of those talks people come and say okay so the deer can't transmit it or carry it what's going on with the deer and I sort of had to shrug and say well we don't know exactly we've just known for some time that the deer don't carry it so that was what came came you know brought about the research that Pat did which was to go in and figure out if it's the blood or if there's some other factors. And what Pat concluded is what was that in fact it's the blood, in fact, the serum component of the blood. We have reason to suspect to suspect that it's the complement in the serum. So part of the innate immune response. So not the antibody response that we think of when we think of the, um, the response that we have to most diseases, but the innate response, which is that. Ready made response to, to early infection and complement is a big part of that innate immune response. And what we think is going on is that the Lyme germ or the Lyme bacterium has figured out how to shut down most complement systems so that it can overcome that, that, that innate barrier. But in the case of deer, it has not overcome that innate barrier. So deer kill, deer, excuse me, deer blood kills.
0: Uh, the Lyme agent inside the ticks. and that's that's our finding. All right. we're, we're really excited to dig in on that with you. Uh, but let's let's talk a little bit about your background first uh, just so that our, our community um, can get to know you before you start to share uh, some of what you have to share with our folks. So talk a little bit about uh, where you're from and and the lab that you are running at uh, at UMass Amherst. So I'm from upstate New York in a small town called Watertown, where
2: there was no ticks when I was growing up. I won't talk about how long ago that was. Um, But um, yeah, my my background is I I earned degrees at the University of Vermont, University of California and Harvard University. I basically have been studying most of my career uh, population genetics. So I've been studying the genetics of animals in the wild, animals and bacteria. And I've almost always plied that trade on studying tick-borne or mosquito-borne infections. And so the lab that we built up here at UMass was an extension of the lab that we had originally built at Tufts. I transferred from Tufts to UMass in 2005. We call it the Laboratory of Medical Zoology, and we focus exclusively on zoonotic diseases. So we're interested in those diseases that aren't transmitted person-to-person like COVID and other things that we think about but that are transmitted from, from animals to humans. And we recognize that there are some fundamentally different aspects of the biology of those organisms or those transmission cycles. And likewise, a fundamental importance in how we address those problems. Um, and I'll say just as a on a personal note, I started this off as really a basic scientist. So my questions were, um, so in some ways, it's selfish questions. Like I just wanted to understand how things work, which is what many scientists do. And um, what I the way I describe the, the things I've been doing so for the past 15 or 17 years since I arrived at UMass is it's sort of been a climb down from the ivory tower. So rather than just doing research that that satisfies my curiosity or ties into a community of, of scientists, you know, m- my trusted colleagues, I really wanted to find research that was going to have some redeeming uh, social impact, or some somehow change something in the world. And so the efforts have been to, for my part, is to try to understand what the needs are, but also the research that we're already doing, how we can communicate it in a way that it's useful to the people that that
0: um, will be utilizing it. So we really we really appreciate the practical approach that you're taking to this, because quite frankly. Um, you know, we have to look at the patterns that are resulting in people becoming chronically ill, like my co-host, Matt, who was bed bound and uh, almost uh, unemployable for, you know, for a long time. Uh, and 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 we need more of that sort of practical application of the research that's being done. And it's one of the reasons why we're a big fan of yours. Even before we met you, we were big fans of yours because of that approach you've taken where you're now applying your research rather than just answering questions that are, that are, um, that are, I guess, in your, you know, that are curious uh, for you. The the other thing we want to thank you for is building the lab where you're, you're also training other um, young scientists to also take a practical approach to the work that they're doing. And it was kind of you to recognize, uh, you know, the young man who had, who had done the research at has has, has uh, been uh, recently celebrated by the folks in the Lyme community with with the um, with the research on the deer, uh, but it's actually your, your great work and the and the and the approach that you're taking, the training young people to become applied scientists that uh, you know that we're really excited about. So thank you for that. So so let's take a look at uh, let's take a look at some of the work that you're doing in your lab, right? Because um, uh, there is this process um, and and, and it's a well-defined process, right? We understand how people are getting Lyme disease. Well, actually, maybe not. So we're going to talk about that a little bit as well. But But the process generally is there's a tick that's infected that finds us, grabs us, crawls on us, bites us, spits in us, sucks blood out of us, spits in us, sucks blood out of us, ultimately is attached for some period of time and then leaves us. And at the end of that process we have you know we have a whole bunch of germs spit into us right and it's another one of the things that you're studying in your lab. Um, so let's talk about let's talk about that process. I mean, do you agree with what I've outlined for you as the process for the transmission of these germs from a tick to a human? Yeah, I think that's a great cartoon picture and and serves a
2: lot of need to understand what's going on. I would just emphasize that, that that spitting process that you alluded to, that we have to bear in mind that that is a complex biological process, that there's a whole bunch of things that are happening in that spit, just like in our own spit. And so to think of ticks as syringes that sort of suck things out and deposit them someplace would be the wrong model and i'm not saying you're saying that but i just it's important for your for your listeners to understand that this is a very complex process that a lot of things have to happen in order for the germs to go over from the tick to the person or from the person or from the animal to the to the tick and it's important to bear that piece
0: in in mind okay so uh i want to ask you one other question before we get into Discussing that process, which is you've also studied, you've also studied malaria and and the transmission of malaria from um, from uh, a different type of vector. And one of the questions that keeps coming up in the Lyme community, which quite frankly we we've debated about, is whether or not Lyme disease can be transmitted to humans from other vectors such as mosquitoes and or bed bugs. Now we've argued that that is not. A vehicle for transmission because there is a there isn't a long enough period of attachment and there is not the complex system that you've just defined with the with the tick spit, which I do want to build out. But um, although mosquitoes andor bed bugs may harbor the bacteria, it's our position that it's unlikely that either of those vectors could transmit Lyme disease to humans because of those two other factors, which is the time of attachment and the and the tick spit. Are we right or wrong about that? I I think you're entirely right, and and one of the
2: reasons that that happens as well, that, for example, mosquitoes aren't really good vectors for things like Borrelia, the Lyme disease agent, is that mosquitoes have an immune response, just like ticks have an immune response, and Borrelia hasn't figured out how to overcome that, that immune response in the mosquitoes, nor has it figured out the fundamental problem of getting across different tissues inside that mosquito,
0: which it has figured out how to do in the tick. Okay. So now let's talk about, let's talk about again the practical approach you're taking in your lab to um to interfering with that pattern that we've just we've just defined, right? Which is the tick between the tick ultimately um being full of germs and then attaching to us and spitting those germs into us with this complex process that you have defined. Um, so as a practical matter, your lab has taken uh, uh, an approach to interfering with that pattern or coming up with different ways of interfering with that pattern. And one of the ways that you've done that is, uh, and again, I know it's another one of your students, and I'm sure you're going to want to give uh, an additional student uh, credit for the work, but you've, you've talked about the difference between using repellents that are contact repellents and repellents that are spatial repellents. So from the from the standpoint of that first process where a tick is grabbing onto us because it can't bite us and spit in us if it isn't able to grab onto us, your lab and, and some of your students have focused on on uh, on repellents and the different types of repellents. So you can, can you share with us what your research, what research you've done in, uh, on, in that regard and, and how, um, how you've come up with some new findings about the tip, different types of repellents that we might be using to protect ourselves from ticks grabbing onto us? Yeah, I'd be happy to. And before digging into that,
2: could I just st- take one step back and say that repellents are different from acaricides and I think that's important for people to bear in mind as well. So repellents, at least in theory, are things that prevent arthropods, mosquitoes, ticks from doing something that we don't want them to do, get on us, bite us, etc. Acaricides are pesticides against ticks. And they kill ticks, so I think that's a fundamentally uh, important thing. That often you hear, and I, you you didn't mix that up. And just often you you'll see things advertised as repellents or acaricides,
0: and sometimes they a little get mixed up.
2: All right, so, so can we pause
0: that for a second? So an example of a would be permethrin, correct? Okay, and and so so occasionally, the, I'm over. sorry. So so the, so the so the there are. In your lab, talk about how you've, you've, you've studied the two different types of chemicals and what, how we might use them as a practical measure of either keeping ticks from, uh, I guess, coming to us at all, or ticks uh, from staying on us or crawling up us if they were to ultimately, uh, you know, come in contact with us. So what we've
2: focused on is studying the different types of repellents, which some of which don't have any acaricidal activity. And repellents are things like DEET. DEET doesn't kill ticks. You can spray DEET onto a tick or mosquito and it has no no impact. What it does is it repels the tick. And the way it works is if you spray DEET on your skin, when the ticks crawl across your skin and come in contact with the treated skin, they're repelled, so they'll turn around. And if you cover your skin sufficiently, then you would protect yourself from having the ticks come on and attach you and bite. Those are called contact repellents. Deed is a contact repellent. So with uh, the student, Eric Siegel, and with my uh, colleague, Noelle Elman, we decided to explore whether spatial repellents might also be an approach against ticks. And I'll be honest with you, I, I questioned how it was going to work just because the nature of the biology of ticks is very different than mosquitoes. So spatial repellents work fairly well against mosquitoes, but mosquitoes do a couple of things that ticks don't do. One, they fly. So they fly around and they're actually trying to identify something to, to latch onto. Whereas ticks are ambush predators, black-legged ticks in particular. And so they're waiting for something to come by and then they just sort of grab on. And we know that from our just our own field research that if you grab a, grab a blanket and run the blanket across vegetation, they'll grab onto that. So they're indiscriminate. So the thought that a repellent would keep them from grabbing onto the blanket or onto us didn't I, I wasn't understanding exactly how that would work a spatial repellent. Um, nonetheless, we we carried out the experiments because we always want to want to test things. We want to just guess that we're we're on the right track. And lo and behold, spatial repellents do alter the behavior. So what we did was we set up a chamber where we had ticks, and we had to solve the problem that ticks don't really behave very well. They don't do the things we want them to do. They don't move from point A to point B. They're not really attracted, in the case of black-legged ticks, they're not attracted to heat or CO2 in particular. But one thing they do do is they crawl upward. So you put them on the on a, a stick um, and you let them crawl and they'll crawl upward. And that resembles what they would do in the wild, which is they get on us on our feet and they crawl up to find a place to attach. So knowing that we could make them or, or, or that they would automatically do this behavior put on on the bottom of the stick and they crawl to the top of the stick we just set up a very simple experiment when we said what happens if we put the spatial repellent at the top of the chamber the ticks at the bottom and let them go and when we look at controls the ticks with no repellent the ticks crawl to the top of those sticks when we put spatial repellent inside so ticks that sorry, um, repellents that they're not coming in contact with as they would with DEET on the skin, they don't crawl up the stick or they crawl up only halfway or they crawl up very slow or in some cases they fall off the stick. So that tells us that spatial repellency, at least in that very controlled environment, outside of any host factors, there's some There's some aspects, there, there's some um,
0: repellency going on with the spatial repellents. So now the research you you folks had done on on that topic was based on a Department of Defense grant that you had received. And um and you were, I, I think you were researching this with, with a device that would essentially, I guess, be on the leg or the ankle, which would then which would then protect us if we were walking through the woods and 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 the ticks were at least coming from a lower part of the ground up. Um, where is that device, you know, from a practical standpoint, is that is that device continuing to be developed is that something that's being used in the field and is that something that may be available to us um, in the public at some point
1: uh
2: that device is still continuing to be developed not by my lab but by our con- by uh, gear jump technologies so i'm probably not at liberty too much to talk about where that stands but it's something that we hope to see someday as a product that people could use
0: so now one, of, one, of the, one of the challenges with DEET, of course, is um, is that it, it, get, it gets absorbed, right? So when we put DEET on our body, there is a window of time where the DEET would protect us from, from ticks coming in contact with us. But I think we'd have to continue to reapply that, or am I wrong about that? That's correct. So if you were using this, this spatial protection tool... Um, would would we have to continue to reapply it, or is, is this something that would uh, would continue to protect us as long as we had the um, I guess the device that that we'd be wearing on us? That's the functionality of the device: is that it has chambers to release the spatial repellency
2: over time or at request. So you could have it connected in a way that it to a cell phone or a device that would allow the the, the release of the agent over time, the active okay. ingredient
1: what kind of agents are in that in those chambers Does it vary have you t- tried different types of agents to release
2: we did so we tried uh transfluthrin and metaflutherin. we also tried something called nucatone that didn't make it in the publication we're um, pr- publishing that under uh under a separate paper um is interesting in that it seems to act as both a repellent and an acaricide so it both repels ticks and it it um kills ticks CDC is very interested in it because it um because it's it's a very natural product. It's from the, the rind of a of a grapefruit. It's extracted from grapefruit, um, so it's generally regarded as safe and is preferable to some of the synthetic um, molecules that people are
0: concerned about. So, so professor, you you anticipated the next area that I wanted to address with you, which is uh, which is the nature of the chemical that would be used. To uh, protect us from ticks attaching to us, right? We 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 focus on permethrin in this in this podcast in the past, um, and uh, we know that permethrin should not be applied to your skin. And actually, in some countries, uh, your know, permethrin cannot eat, be legally used on children's clothing. Um, we also know that DEET has chemical properties that have us concerned, and, and 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 may increase the chemical load that we are that we are bearing, which we uh we're going to talk about risk in a minute and the risk formula of threat times vulnerability but being more vulnerable and less and and perhaps uh being immunocompromised because of all these chemicals that we're constantly absorbing so so talk to us about how you've taken that into consideration when when you were looking at the, the the chemicals that you're using for the spatial protection i think the idea is to have as many tools in the arsenal as you can
2: so yeah, some people are going to have adverse reactions to different components or di- different different weapons in that toolbox. And so we have to have alternatives available to us. And I, I know it's frustrating for people. It's kind of like you go to the doctor and the doctor says, do you have any allergy to antibiotics? And you don't know what you're not allergic to until you had it. Um, so the, the aim is basically to build a large number of tools and then, you know, empirically for people to figure out what's going to work with their particular circumstance. I would like to emphasize, though, that things that are natural aren't necessarily always safer. So we have lots of allergies to naturally existing things, for example. We have lots of other kinds of reactions to natural, um, you know, rattlesnake venom is natural. Um, So the notion that something's natural and automatically that that makes it uh, safer. It, it it's really more about customizing to people's individual needs. I when when I'm talking about these things, I generally regard permethrin as one of the front lines of, of protection. I think it's it's a very very effective. It's got a very good safety profile. That doesn't mean that it works for everybody or it works in every situation. So having as many tools as we can is going to be the, the the proper solution.
1: Dr. Rich, I just want to ask a quick question here before we go on too far, because you talked about earlier with Rich, how when the tick bites, certain things happen when the tick bites the host, you know, in this case, a human being. So we interviewed Professor Shoppy and she was telling us that she had these theories that she was sharing with Dr. Alan McDonald, that the general thought is when a tick bites you, that the Borrelia has to go through the salivary gland to get into the human and to get into our blood. But she she called it regurgitation or backwash, right? Like she, she, she in her exact words were there is this straw like material that goes in. She goes, is it possible that we can be the ticks can be regurgitating or, you know, backwashing the bacteria into us in a way that's not going through the salivary gland? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? That was more of an anecdotal question she brought up from her research that they were looking at, but never really did a deep dive into. But, you know, what are your views on, on her question about that?
2: So regurgitation in ticks is not consistent with their anatomy. They have a block in their and their pharynx, basically a pharyngeal block that prevents things from coming out of the mid gut. Ticks are pretty simple tubes. They have a mouth part, and then they have a mid gut where they digest the blood, and then they have the the end it where everything comes out. And when a blood meal is imbibed, it really goes one way through that through that uh, through that path from the mouth to the anus. The only way that a pathogen can get out of there and go back the other way is to emerge outside that midgut to then traverse the hemocele, which is the open circulatory system of the tick basically it's blood and then go inside to the salivary glands where it gets loaded up and then and then injected so every indication is that without that ability and that's that's the complex biology we're talking about without the ability to get out of that midgut into the hemocele and back into the cellar glands, they, they cannot be, be transmitted. And we've paid attention to that because we've tried to find mechanisms. I don't know how far you want to go down this realm, but it's yeah, quite please. interesting that the mechanism that, um, that Borrelia, that the Lyme pathogen uses to basically saw its way out of that midgut, it doesn't have it inherently. It doesn't have it in its own genome. It doesn't make the protein. What it does, is it co-ops the protein from the blood, mouse or otherwise, and then it uses that to make its own little serine protease, its own little saw that it can cut out and then get into the hemocele. So to so, recap
1: that, it it actually picks up a protein from the rat or the, the host it's in before the tick bites the rat and gets the, the Borrelia in its mid-gut, and then it uses that protein to be able to get through the tick and into the human once the tick bites the human. Is that what I, what I how I understand it?
2: That's right. And it's one of the reasons that people talk about um, the delay in the the transmission, because that's a biological process that takes time. So the Borrelia is already inside the tick's gut when it gets on you and starts feeding. But the the, the insidious thing is the Borrelia is going to use proteins from the blood it takes from you to actually get across that membrane and then come back into you.
1: That's wild. So another another topic that was brought up with Professor Shapi was, and she, you know, she was more anecdotally questioning these things. But she said that when a tick bites a human, there when they look when they look at it under a microscope, or they're, they're doing a study, they see that maybe there's a handful of spirochetes, you know, Borrelia bacteria in the tick. Then, as soon as it hits the blood in the human body, it replicates significantly. And she said, you know, you can see thousands and thousands of spirochetes suddenly appear once it enters the bloodstream of a human host. What are your thoughts on that? Why it can be, you know, such few concentrations of the Borrelia bacteria in a tick, then it enters the human host, and then it just explodes and replicates once it hits the human body.
2: I'm not familiar with any evidence of, that it does explode one, once it hits the human body. What I know about Borrelia is that it has, compared to things like E. coli, so, or salmonella, you know, gut bacteria, where there are 10 to the 8th, 10 to the 9th, or, or malaria, a, a bloodborne parasite, 10 to the 13th billions of millions of, of of cells. In the case of bralia, there's usually just maybe a thousand or ten thousand cells inside the tick. The number of, of bralia that traverse the that from that tick into the in the human is the same number or probably a smaller subsample of those. And then there's only a very transient phase when the bralia is found in the blood, which is one of the reasons it's hard to diagnose, because it makes its way from that feeding lesion Briefly into the blood, and then it transmits to all those different tissues that cause us so much problems our knees, our hearts, our, our um, neurological tissues. But it really never becomes, uh, we, we call the word is spirochetemic, meaning the, the count of Brélia, or the count of spirochetes, excuse me, in the blood. There's a, only a transient spirochetemia for braillea burgdorferi. There are other brailleas that uh, are, are relapsing fever Brélias that are blood borne. Uh, Borrelia miomotoi is an example, but burgdorferi is only in small numbers and only in the blood for a very short period of time.
1: So then why are these PCR tests so, you know, right now PCR tests are the, are the thing. Oh, they're better than antibody tests because we're going to look at the blood and look for the DNA of the Borrelia bacteria, but if the Borrelia bacteria is only in the blood for a short period of time before it gets disseminated into tissues, it sounds like PCR testing is not as great as many people believe it to be. I mean, what are your thoughts on that?
2: So what PCR is very value, very powerful in that it can take a very small number of molecules, in this case, DNA. You're looking for the DNA, which every single bacterium has. And PCR can detect maybe one molecule corresponding to one cell. And it does so because it amplifies that that DNA and to the point that you can you can detect it. The problem is, if your starting material doesn't have that one cell, it's not going to be effective. So, if my whole body has ten thousand Brelia cells, and I take one cell from here or one t- sample from here, the likelihood that that sample has an amplifiable, a PCRable uh, fragment is not um, is it's very, very low. It's one of the reasons that you know we, we test ticks and we and we use PCR to test ticks. And people say, well, why why can you so effectively test Borrelia in ticks, and you can't do the same in people? And the answer is, when we test Borrelia in ticks, we grind up the whole tick, so every single bit of Borrelia uh, in that tick is now available to us for amplification. It, if if you wanted to grind me up, you could find all the Borrelia in me as well. <laughs> that's that's not I, so. <laughs> we're not going to
0: grind you up. Please no. <laughs> so uh, so. Um, let, let's let's bring it back now to the to this process of of a tick now biting us right so you did you did describe uh, the the process of a tick essentially putting a tube into us right and and it has a sort of jagged uh tube that it then it, it digs into our skin it ultimately does start to suck blood from us and and what you just shared with us is, Part of the process of, of the tick sucking blood from us allows the tick now to take proteins from our blood, and 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 it then it then puts the tick uh, puts I'm sorry the the what is traditionally known as the Lyme bacteria or, or the Borrelia then changes uh, changes its protein shell so that it can then escape into uh, into our bodies right so there is this process where it's using us against ourselves. As, as part of this process. Now let's talk about let's talk about um, you know removing ticks as a practical matter now that we find a tick and the tick is on us and, and, and attached to us and we want to remove the tick. And there are there are some people in the community that believe that if you squeeze the body of the tick, you're increasing the likelihood that the um, that the germs that, that have not yet been transmitted or spit into us will will occur. Is there any evidence to suggest that that belief is accurate? There's no evidence that that's accurate, and there's good evidence
2: based on, again, the an- a- anatomy of the tick that that's not the way it works. That squeezing the tick, while it might rupture the tick and and you know make a mess that in that way, you're not squeezing it the way you would squeeze a syringe or squeeze a squeeze a balloon and the stuff come out that way. So it's not without, um, it's not, it's, it's not, what, what's the word I'm trying to say? It, it, it's better to pull the tick off and not squeeze it, but you're not squeezing the contents of that tick back into the tick gut. Tick gut. And I, I think that the fundamental message is get the tick off as quickly as you can. So don't, don't labor with the idea that I'm gonna I'm gonna try some fancy thing, I'm gonna put wax on it or put nail polish on it. The longer that tick is attached to you, every minute, every hour, the higher the likelihood that what's in that tick comes out of you, and squeezing that tick is not going to substantially increase
0: that risk as much as it would leaving the tick on. So that's that's why I was asking the question because of course the way the way we should be removing the tick is by getting a, you know a you know a a, a a fine tweezer and grabbing it as close to our skin as we possibly can and pulling it out you know pulling it up. Uh, but if we don't have tweezers or we don't have a tool available to us. Um, we have to get it off as quickly as possible. Just grabbing the tick, especially if it's an engorged tick, it, it, it's more likely we'll be able to see it, it's more likely we'll be able to grab it, and pulling it out is better than running around and trying to find something or going to a doctor or going to a hospital having having it taken it off, right? I mean, it would be better, at least you know, in my view, I don't want to speak for you, to just pull it off, uh, even if you're grabbing it and squeezing it, because it's actually attachment time that increases the, your, the likelihood that you're going to get sick, not, uh, not squeezing the tick uh, when you're pulling it off.
2: Yeah, and I'd emphasize, Rich, that that's entirely true for Borrelia, but maybe it's worth noting that there are other things inside those, those ticks. There could be things like uh, Francisella tularensis, which is the Asian tularemia. Those kinds of bacteria, if you squeeze them and you get them on the surface of your skin, that can be that can lead to infection. They're very very rare. They're different types of infections, but what we're talking about primarily is borrelia. Okay, so, so wait, I'm you're sorry, saying man. you
1: can get it on your so if you squeeze the 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 tick and certain pathogens, it's it's holding and its mid gut get in your skin. You can get infected just from skin contact based on that that explosion of the mid gut on your on your finger potentially or something.
2: In the same way that you can get infected from uh, you know a splinter of wood or a cut cutting yourself with whatever with you you can get. Yeah, a surface infection from, from different bacteria.
1: But what about what about attachment times? Because I feel like we're focusing on Lyme here, but we know that attachment times for Lyme can be different than attachment times for other tick-borne illnesses. So, you know, people say, oh, if the tick wasn't on you for more than a day or two days, you're probably safe. But I think that's sort of misleading because there are other tick-borne illnesses that can be transmitted much more quickly. So what are your thoughts on that, Dr. Rich?
2: Yeah, that's always the controversial one. So the evidence is based on work that was done in in mice. So you can put ticks on mice, and you can see, you can, you know, in a laboratory situation, you can measure how long they fed, and you can figure out the likelihood that the, t- that, the that time of feeding corresponds to infection in that mouse. It's a little bit di- more difficult to do those kinds of experiments in people for obvious reasons. Um, but there's good reason to believe that the biology of the Borrelia when it feeds on mice is akin to what would happen in ticks. I, I think where people get I think there's a couple of things going on. One is people have to remember that when they say on average 24 hours or on average 48 hours for transmission of Borrelia, that averages are such that they have tails, you know, that they have distributions. And so when something's an average of 48 hours, it doesn't exclude that something could happen at 36 hours or 24 hours. Um, and so it's important to bear that piece in mind. The other thing is people will have... Um, you, you know, a um, they'll have an inaccurate understanding of the history of their exposure. I'll, I'll put it that way, because mm. they take a tick off that they know they just got that day. And yet two weeks later, they have Lyme disease and they think that's the tick that gave it to me. But there could have been another tick that bit on their backside that was on for four days that they never found. Um, and it's unfortunate that we already know that a large percentage of people that end up with Lyme never remember having a tick bite, and so the same could be true for people that do find a tick bite, is that they mix miss
0: the culprit that actually caused it. So let's talk about the this multi germ infection because you know one one of the controversies that you know that we weigh in on in uh, in the Lyme community is really how you define Lyme disease, right? Uh, and it, there almost seem to be as many definitions as there are people defining it, and 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 because of that, for example, um, Dr. Alan McDonald um, has argued in in various articles that he's written that um, that we should divorce from Lyme uh, because uh, because there are just so many different definitions of Lyme, and we should be moving to we should be moving to. Um, you know, names like borreliosis and anaplasmosis and these kinds of things. So because of that, we actually have have decided we're going to define Lyme disease on this podcast uh, and our other podcast as a polymicrobial, multisystemic, chronic infectious disease. Um, and I know in your lab, you've done a great deal of research on this polymicrobial nature, I meaning you're looking at the, the different microbes that can be in a tick and can ultimately be spit into us. So talk to us about that research that you've done and, and how many different microbes are you now studying that are in ticks that can be spit into us?
2: So most of our work focuses on black-legged ticks and the canonical three Borrelia, Anaplasma and Babesia. But we have done surveys where we've looked at um, and what I, by surveys, I mean molecular surveys. So this is like casting a big molecular net to see what's in those gut contents. And there's literally dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of different species of bacteria living in the gut, as you would find if you were to probe um, any pond water or or any other place that the bacteria are just, they're ubiquitous, they're everywhere and they're numerous. So when I say there's dozens of bacteria, it's not that they're all pathogens. Some of them may actually be fighting against the, the pathogens. And we're still trying to sort out the, all that out. Are there some back? There are almost certainly, people aren't going to believe it, but there are almost certainly some good bacteria in there. In other words, bacteria that have a negative impact on the things that that cause disease in us. Um, we just haven't figured out which ones are the bad ones and which ones are the good ones. We, we have to remember that bacteria are organisms like everything else. So just as squirrels are competing for nuts and chip, with chipmunks, et cetera, bacteria too are competing. And so bacteria kill other bacteria. That's why we think there's at least the possibility that there's good bacteria in ticks that you could maybe figure out and you maybe identify and utilize as a tool to, to kill the bad bacteria.
0: So we had we had come across some research uh, specifically about black legged ticks where one of the and I, I don't remember who the researcher was. One of the researchers argued that there could be up to 200 different um, bacteria, viruses and protozoa um, harbored by a black legged tick. Is that consistent with what your research is? Yeah, I would say that numbers may be even a little bit low, depending on how you uh, how you divide up the the, the numbers of species. So. Now let's talk about the spit and the impact that the spit is now having on uh, on our immune system and I'd like to contrast that to the impact that the spit the tick spit does not seem to be having on deer, uh, in particular with the research you have done. So can you talk about the impact that the that the tick spit is having on the human um, re, uh, immune response and and why that is a vital element to um, to I, I think Borrelia, um i think selecting ticks as its vehicle for transmission so so i just want to remind that the
2: work we did
0: was looking at the effects of borrelia
2: on the blood and the interaction with the tick in fact it wasn't part of our experimental design so spit wasn't involved with what we were looking at we were looking at borrelia as it grows outside of ticks and outside of basically in a test tube okay the, the interaction with blood um, but in answer to your question about the saliva, there are multiple components of the saliva that dampen down that innate immune response as well, which is independent of what Bralia can do for itself. There are aspects of the tick saliva, because the tick is confronting this similar challenges to what bralia faces. It's got to keep this host from having an immune response in such a way that it's, the tick is not going to be able to complete its feeding so it has modulators as well in the saliva that dampen down that innate immune response, stop inflammation. Basically, um, you don't want um, people to get, you don't want to get itchy. You don't want to notice it. You don't want to have to have to groom it off. And so they have a, a rich, it's called a silome, a, a rich um, uh, set of proteins that interact in that way and do different things at the, at the site of the bite to prevent our immune response from, from, kill, from stopping that thick feeding.
0: So let's build this out, you know, and in, in, again, in, in the very practical way that you are in your lab, right? So, so we have a number of different protections available to us to prevent a tick from feeding on us long term. One of which you had defined, which would be an itch response, right? So, so the so the tick spit has um, has some proteins that that uh, prevent us from having an itch response, right? Another another um, another uh, response that we would have is an inflammatory response. Um, and, 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 and of course there are, there are anti-inflammatory elements to the tick spit. Another is of course, a blood plug would, would, uh, would form. So, uh, so it has some anticoagulant, um, uh, properties in the spit and there are a number of others. So can you, can you outline, um, you know, some of the richness because you did, you know, when we went through the, the tick bite process, you did identify this, uh, this, 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 this this uh saliva element as an important and complex are there any other um, proteins in particular ticks that make us uh, more vulnerable to not only uh you know the tick as a host but also also the 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 various germs being spit into us and 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 compromising our immune response so I
2: would say that's ver- that work is very much on the cutting edge like of figuring out what those protein proteins are what I would say is that, Maybe it's helpful for pe- for people to understand the way that ticks feed compared to how mosquitoes feed, because many of us may have done the experiment when we we're a kid. We, you watch a mosquito land on you and watch it feed, or maybe that's just a geeked out. In, in, <laughs> what they do is they land and they feed and they're only they're they're there and they're off within a matter of you know 45 seconds to 60 seconds. Ticks have a very different approach. They have a bigger investment in every single blood meal, so when they attach. As you pointed out, they drill themselves in with that auger-like mouth part, the hypostome, and then they cement themselves in place. So the first thing that the, the saliva is a cement, a glue that attaches them so that they can stay there and not get brushed off very easily. Then they start the feeding process and it takes place over days, not minutes. So it can take a week or 10 days for a tick to complete its uh, its uh, feeding cycle. And so that whole time, it's basically cultivating its blood meal in a feeding lesion that lies just underneath the skin. And it's doing all of the things that you said. It's preventing inflammation. It's keeping the blood from coagulating because it's only gonna be liquid blood that it's gonna pull back through that straw. And it's um, doing everything it can to dampen down any innate immune response that's gonna come in there and interrupt that process of feeding. the The physiology of it is interesting in that the feeding takes place over days and days, but most of that um, that imbibing of the blood meal takes place right at the very end. Um, this is something that um, Andy Spielman used to refer to as the big slurp. So Andy Spielman was a professor of of um, public health at the school, public Harvard School of Public Health, and had done some of the seminal work in this, in this area. He calls it the big slurp. So they're attached and they're cultivating this pool of blood for a period of days, and then very near the end of the process, they slurp it up, and that's how they take the glycogenin.
1: Wow.
0: so now in some cases folks think uh, that that the tick is essentially getting under the skin which we know is not true it's just the, the just or and I want you to just verify this it's only the mouthpiece or the straw that gets into the skin but there is an inflammation at times on the on the skin level which makes it almost look like the the tick is is the body of the tick is embedded in the um, in the skin so can you distinguish? You know the, infl- the internal inflammation versus the external inf- uh, inflammation, and can you can you confirm that it is only the the straw, the mouthpiece that that augers its way into uh, the skin? Yeah, I think you described
2: it perfectly. So it's just the mouth parts. It's just that tiny, tiny tip at the end of the uh, of the tick, which is barely visible to the naked eye. That's what it ser- inserts inside. And because the ability to suppress the immune response is not perfect, because we do get a little bit of swelling around the area. Um, our skin sort of builds up around it on occasion. So it may appear that it's embedded and it may make the tick more difficult to pull off, but the tick has just the tiniest piece of it inserted into you. And then those two palps, the, the pieces that lie alongside the, stra- the uh, straw that w- splay out and uh, horizontally and glue the tick to that, to that position.
0: So, I mean, and that glue is a really interesting or the cement is a really interesting uh, piece as well. I mean, it's just amazing, you know, the, the way these vectors work, that they, that they have a cement that, that sticks into, you know, around their mouthpiece and keeps it stuck into the, the body. And, and, and I'd like Matt to sort of uh, chime in because the most recent tick bite that Matt had suffered, um, he came flying into my office in the not too distant past um, and, and he, had, uh, he had a tick attached. Um, and, and we, and we thought it was, we thought it was an adult tick. And as it turned out, it was a nymph tick that had been attached for a long time. And it was actually right underneath his, his, uh, his, his belt area. Um, and so Matt, why don't you talk about what, what that experience was like and, 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 and how, you know, this tick spit was was, was essentially paralyzed all of your defenses until you actually physically touched it in the shower.
1: Yeah, so this is an interesting one because this is also a nice transition to the Lone Star tick from the deer tick. I was, you know, woke up, was getting ready to go in the shower, happened to just my hand was was uh grazing past my my waist and I felt something. I'm like, this is weird. I look down and I see a tick, right? And now knowing how bad that can be, I have a panic attack. It was a complete, you know, panic-stricken fear moment. Went down to Rich's office where he has he has, you know, Rich has a ton of uh, he, has a, he has several tickets and I stole one of his tickets, essentially, and we removed the tick. we got, you know, we, we did we did everything right. But what I found interesting was before I even before I even got to Rich's office, I was, you know, your immediate reaction is to pull a tick off. Right. So I did it with my bare hands, my fingers, take the tick, rip it off. And because I was in such a state of panic, I dropped it and the tick landed on the floor and literally started like, I'm I'm being dramatic, but running at me. So it didn't just sit there, it actually started crawling back towards me. And I had to pick it up and put it into a little Ziploc bag, which was interesting, because in my experience with deer ticks, they don't do that, right, Dr. Rich. So these Lone Star ticks seem to be much more aggressive in how they can seek out the host versus a deer tick. And I guess before we go any further, what are your thoughts on that, how how these Lone Star ticks are much more aggressive in seeking out hosts compared to deer ticks?
2: Yeah, they're a bit of a game changer. That we, you know, we mentioned early on that black legged ticks are ambush predators. They hang out on the end of a branch. They wait for something to come by. They're basically playing a numbers game and hoping that they're the one that's lucky enough to grab onto something. Whereas lone star ticks will walk across your blanket to come and get on you. Um, they're much more aggressive biters they um they seek out hosts, they do cue on things like c o two that our bodies emit and different um you know odors that our bodies emit. so they are very different um very different beasts in that regard. The good news is they they don't transmit Lyme disease for one, and there's now a copious amount of evidence that um looking at uh looking at lone star ticks and no detection of Borrelia in the lone star ticks. They are associated with other diseases, including the red meat allergy, that has us all um a little perplexed as to what, what actually causes that red meat allergy,
0: but um, but they are very aggressive biters. So let, let's talk about that. So let, let, let's first distinguish why uh why uh the black legged tick will harbor the uh Borrelia and why the why the um low star tick will not. So the the culprit here, the chicken and the egg,
2: is that um, the reservoir of the pathogens, the the mammal source, is the white-footed mice. Um, and white-footed mice feed lots of black-legged ticks and infect lots of black-legged ticks. Lone star ticks, as it turns out, don't feed on mice. They feed all their life stages on white-tailed deer. So they're ostensibly sampling less of the of the environmental pathogens because they're not feeding on on um, white-footed mice. They do pick up things from deer, but it's a different subset. And
1: so for example, is that they're getting Ehrlichia from a, from a deer? It's like, you know, what are some other t borne illnesses that a lone star taking carry that they get from a deer and can be transmitted to a human?
2: So we, in the past couple of years, we found heartland virus on right there on Long Island. We found heartland virus and bourbon virus. These are viral diseases that were thought to be not in the Northeast, but through ticks that uh, had bitten people and were sent to us for testing. We found, um, found those viruses. There's a licky, as you indicated. There's um, a disease called Starry, which is Southern Tick-Associated Rash Illness. Um, the It was thought for a long time that that illness is caused by a cousin of Borrelia burgdorferi, the Lyme pathogen, something called Borrelia lone stari, named after the lone star tick. It now seems that that's not what's causing most lone stari, although I did see a recent paper that suggests that lone stari can cause kinds of diseases, but um, or cause a disease. Um, But I think the jury's still out on actually what the causative agent of of lone stari is, of of stari rather.
1: Let's look about the meat allergy, right? Because I was just in a meeting yesterday and, you know, people that are bikers and and, and hikers and we're, we're sitting around a conference table and one man goes to another man. Oh, you know, you, you're out there in the trails. You, you, you're looking out for ticks. You're being careful for ticks. And the response was, yeah, I'm just really worried about that that meat allergy. I don't want to not be able to eat a hamburger. And they're having this discussion and I'm listening, you know, and, and hearing the whole thing. And, and we've heard on this podcast from many people that it can be way deeper than just an allergy to red meat. If you're extremely sensitive, you can be sensitive to things like cosmetic products that have, you know, mammal meat byproducts. You could be sensitive to things like potentially dairy. Uh, you could be sensitive to all kinds of stuff that you wouldn't think. We had one woman tell us she'd walk into a grocery store and she'd inhale just the, the fumes from cooking chicken. And she would, she would just like faint, lose her vision, and she couldn't go to the grocery store during the time of when they were preparing these you Not know, chicken mat. Uh, I'm sorry, the, the beat. I'm saying chicken. Um, it's got love rotisserie chickens from the grocery store. So uh <laughs> but, you know, what are your thoughts on on the range of severity of Alpha gal syndrome? And you know, I guess first can you tell us exactly what is Alpha alpha-gal syndrome, the red meat allergy, and why do people have such such drastic differences in how severe it is once they contract it?
2: I I honestly don't have an answer to that. Other than by analogy that anyone that's de- dealt with uh, allergies with their family members or children outside of red meat allergy, whether it's nut allergies or gluten or anything else, you know how complex the individual circumstances can be. And no two, no two cases are necessarily alike. So I don't know what's going on with those more severe um, cases or, or, you know, very severe symptomologies. Um, hopefully that gets figured out. What I know is that the red meat allergy is caused by an is believed to be caused by an interaction of a protein that's present in red meat that's also presented in the context of a of a lone star tick and induces this reaction in people. I would also point out that it's it's similar to another type of. of allergy that occurs in um, or, or another type of disease that's not a pathogenic disease that causes um, paralysis called tick paralysis. It's, there's an Australian tick paralysis tick. And for a long time, it was thought that that tick is the one that produces this toxin that leads to paralysis. What we now know is that lots of different species cause uh, cr- create that toxin and to a lesser extent can cause these paralysis. I'm, I'm suspicious that there might be in the red meat allergy, there might be red meat allergies that are induced um, at a lesser to a lesser degree from ticks that aren't lone star ticks. The initial right. correspondence with lone star ticks really had to do with where those early cases were and the distribution of lone star ticks. It's not to say that um, the red meat allergy is not being transmitted by possibly other ticks.
1: So other ticks could potentially, and this is really interesting because there was a recent study that came out that I just read across the newsfeed about a week or two ago that was highlighting the rise in alpha-gal, but not in severe cases. People are just having minor GI distress and these gastroenterologists were running the alpha-gal panel and they were coming back positive for alpha-gal, but they were just having these minor GI symptoms. So I wonder... If potentially other ticks beyond the lone star tick were contributing to those those cases that were described in this study that just came out a few weeks ago, I mean, I think it's a really important note for all of our listeners. So, thank you for sharing that point.
0: So let, let's talk about that that complex because one one of the one of the issues that we we've questioned with the alpha gal um, community is is it the is it the blood that's being spit into the um, into the host or is it the spit? that's being that's 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 triggering the allergy, and 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 do you have any thoughts on whether it's one or the other uh
2: i think the jury's still out on that so there's a couple of different what you're saying is it could be a host factor in other words it could be the remnants of a blood meal which presumably came from a red meat animal um that's retained in that tick and gets deposited with that with that bite Although that seems relatively unlikely for the reasons that I told you that Borrelia can't come out uh, in a regurgitation fashion. So somehow that that protein would have to make it across the mid-gut barrier and back into the salivary glands. Or it could be something that the um, Lone Star Ticket cell produces a protein that's unrelated to, to, to alpha-gal or or a, a molecule that's unrelated to alpha-gal that... Um, that mimics alpha-gal, that induces this response. So sort of a, an artificial allergen.
0: So, uh, you know, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to take you to another place. Uh, as you can imagine, we have a gazillion questions for you. And that is, uh, that is the, um, the increase in um, Lyme disease diagnoses, right? Uh, the numbers are just going through the roof. And I, I can tell you that um, um, I, I'm probably a little older than you, um, but I grew up on Long Island and I've been bitten by ticks my entire life. I mean, we, ticks were a part of our our experience for, for, for my uh, my entire life. And what I'm now seeing is people like you who grew up in different parts of New York are telling me that during your childhood, you were not, you know, ticks were not a part of your experience. You, you weren't, you didn't have my mother, you know, checking you every day. with the, we, we literally had Vaseline, which we now know we shouldn't have used, Vaseline and tweezers, on our on a shelf as we walked in the house, uh, and we would also check our dogs every day because we we were full of ticks during you know during the summer months in our backyard, by the way, not in the woods in our backyard. Um, so what you know, let's talk about the increase in in in, in diagnosis because it, we 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 actually use the Stanley McChrystal definition of risk, right? Risk is threat times vulnerability. So I'd like to talk to you about the threat and the vulnerability. So. Uh, let's talk about the threat piece first. It just appears that there are more ticks, right? There were people who grew up in parts of even New York where ticks were not a part of their experience. And now that doesn't seem to be the case, certainly anywhere in New York, certainly anywhere in the, on the East Coast. And, and, and as it turns out, uh, probably anywhere in the U.S. at this point. Um, what is your belief about why the threat has increased, meaning why there are more ticks and why we're, we're coming in contact with more ticks?
2: So... We may have a slightly different de- definition of threat, but I would argue that the threat hasn't increased. The threat has expanded its range, but okay. the threat is probably about the same um, level it was at always. Um, sort of a non-controversial example that I use when I talk about what you're talking about, I call it threat, exposure, and risk. Threat would be, if you took an example like shark bite, the threat would be the man-eating shark that's in the water. The exposure is how often you're swimming, and then the risk is how often you actually get bit. And I don't think that there's a difference in the um, the instance of Borrelia in ticks. It's roughly, wherever we go, we see average of 25 to 30 percent of the nymphal black-legged ticks are infected with Borrelia, roughly 50 or even upwards of 60 percent of the adult ticks are infected with that, wherever they are, whether it's a newly emerged area like upstate New York or even Quebec and Ontario, it's that same rate. The exposure has also not changed. The risk is probably changed in part because of artifacts of of reporting. It, it, you know, like it's now more recognized and gets diagnosed better. We know that th- that still, when the CDC gives numbers, they give numbers on, you know on the order of forty thousand, even though they say this probably reflects cases of four hundred thousand. The difference is the expanded range that it's now um, not hugging the, the coastal Massachusetts, New York and Connecticut. It's now it's ex- working inward and, and northward and the uh, the second foci in the north and in the, in the Midwest are also expanding southward and, and westward in every direction out there as well. So I think it's just more people are getting exposed. The threat is basically the same. It was the ticks are just expanding their ranges and, and biting more people.
0: So what about the expanded breeding window for ticks? Uh, do, you, do you think that the the climate change that we're that we're witnessing, right? I mean, we we had July temperatures this week on Long Island, right? Uh, so we know the breeding window is expanding. It's earlier and it's longer, or do you not believe that the breeding window is expanding and therefore there are there are not more ticks? I cannot say
2: that climate change is not contributing to the expansion of black-legged ticks. I can say that the way we manage landscapes, that our landscape changes, the way we um, um, maintain our properties, has made it a rich environment for white-tailed deer and black-legged ticks, and that that has probably driven more of the expansion than climate change could account for at this point. It's not to say that climate change hasn't. Made a contribution. It would just be. It's just very difficult to tease that out. And no, I'm not convinced that climate change has expanded the the, the breeding cycle or the or the life cycle. What we see is slight perturbations. Like this spring, we saw um, sort of a, a late onset. It was cold into um, into basically a couple of weeks ago here in Massachusetts. So we didn't see the ticks emerge at the same time that we saw them emerge last year. Those aren't really climate. Driven things; those are weather-driven things, and the the local temperatures and and uh, precipitation levels influence those. But I don't see a big big trend otherwise.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about landscape, right? Because there the, there's two different pieces to protecting yourself from ticks. Of course, the first is 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 stopping the tick from getting on you by not even being being in the presence of a tick, right? So we we know that ticks, or we think we know that ticks. Uh, need uh, blood meals and they need moisture, right? So how we ultimately set up our landscape in our yards is going to have an impact on whether or not uh, we're attracting deer, which you just pointed out, but also whether or not we're we're harboring, um, you know, ticks. So can you talk a little bit about about um, you know what the needs are of a tick and how we know whether or not we are a going to be going into an environment where we're likely to come in contact with ticks? And what we can do in our yards to make the environment of our properties less um, attractive to ticks?
2: Yeah, I don't know if you can link things on your webpage, but you might want to link people to um, Dr. Kirby Stafford's. I think it's a seventy-eight page book on managing ticks. It's it's freely available as a PDF. It it not only explains what you can do on your property, it explains why you should do it. Um, So basically. Now, sticking just to black legged ticks for the moment, black legged ticks have kind of a, they're not very hardy in some regards in that they're very susceptible to desiccation. That is they can dry out if they're exposed to to dry conditions or too much sunlight. Um, And so they play this game where they have to climb climb in and out of leaf litter to maintain their, their, their body moisture. So they move down into the leaf litter where they can, um, where it's more, where it's more moist, and they're not likely to die. But they have to crawl up to the end of a branch because that's where they're going to jump on a mouse or, or or a or a deer, and so they're doing this um, sort of balance or, or dance of figuring out how long to spend up on the end of that stick and how far to go down. What you can do is basically create less of those leaf environments, like not having. Big piles of leaf leaves in your in your backyard, and more um, of the dry environments like the end of the blade. Um, and so he's got all kinds of different ways of using hardscapes and uh, different types of mulch. You know, some mulch works, some doesn't. Um, keeping your land or keeping your grass mode can be, make a big difference because black legged ticks do not like short green grass. They just it's just not a good place for them to hang out. Leaf litter is their preferred place. Um, yeah, and that's that's what they're looking. It's, it's it's really about
0: moisture, right? I mean, if 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 you're going to go to a place where there's a lot of shade and a lot of moisture, you're more likely to come in contact with ticks. If you're if you're in a place where where it's sunny and 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 it's dry, you're less likely to come in contact with ticks. Simply because the ticks will dry out and they and and they'll die.
2: Yeah, and the parts that you're describing that are best for ticks are what we call edge. So where the forest meets the the field, that's what ticks like. And the way we've managed landscapes is we have a lot more edge than we ever had. We used have big open forests. then we clear cut it all, and we had all agricultural land. Either of those kind of works pretty well to keep tick numbers down. The way we have it now is we have nice residential neighborhoods where we have lots of edge, rock walls between our properties, um, shrubbery around the outside. That ends up
0: being a, a haven for ticks and deer, ticks, uh, ticks and deer. But let's talk about this this now relationship between uh, between deer and um, and Lyme disease, right? So you know we 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 shared with you offline that when we posted uh, the research from your lab and specifically the uh, the 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 deer's the, you know the, the natural protection that deer have from that particular bacteria there was a lot of controversy back and forth in, you know, on our, on our social media. Some people are saying things like, Hey, I should be eating deer meat. You know, there are other people saying I should be, you know, using deer blood. There are other people saying you shouldn't be you know, bothering the deer and they shouldn't, you know, and, and there was just, you know, but there is a, you know, deer are beautiful animals. We love to, you know, we love to you know, live in a community as such as Matt and I do, where we have deer all over the place. You know, we, we know, Probably that no deer, no Lyme, but the deer are not harboring the disease itself. So, can we talk about deer management and the impact that that deer are um, uh, having on Lyme disease, even though they themselves are not the uh, are not the vehicle for transmitting that bacteria to the tick to us?
2: Yeah, it's a it's a subtly um, difficult thing for people to understand that. Deer are necessary for having deer ticks. Without deer ticks, excuse me, without deer, you don't have deer ticks because deer are the adult breeding site for the black-legged ticks. That's where they (laughs) meet their husbands or wives and and start their families. If you don't have deer, you don't have ticks. However, they are, as our study showed, they are refractory to infection with brillia. So while they're Necessary for deer ticks, they're counter to uh, to maintenance of Borrelia in the wild. Um, and so that, again, it's a, a balance of having enough deer, or the wrong m- number of deer, to maintain deer ticks, and then the white-footed mice that are maintaining the transmission cycle. If you could theoretically have only white-tailed deer, you wouldn't have Lyme disease. Not proposing to eradicate mice, it's just... There actually have been studies that have been done. So I was involved with some work on Monhegan Island that was done 20 years ago now where they took the deer off the island. Now the deer had been introduced there some years ago by residents. They took the population off and they solved their Lyme problem because they, couldn't ha- they didn't have deer ticks anymore. No one's ever been able to take mice out of the equation because they're just too numerous. There are um, people now talking at MIT about making transgenic mice that Are refractory to infection
0: and then releasing them as a way of trying
2: to control it.
0: And, and what is your opinion about that? Because that scares the bejesus out of me, quite frankly. You know, when we're we're gonna essentially play with the play with the genome of uh, of the mice and then set them free. I'm just concerned about what else that might that might do. What is your your gut reaction to that?
2: I don't have concerns about Frankenmouse, like I'm not concerned that anything's gonna leak into the environment. I do have concerns about the practicality of the approach and the amount of um, resource that would go into doing this to basically to control just one of those diseases transmitted by black ticks, by the same notion that I'm sometimes a little cautious about thinking about um, putting all our eggs into the vaccine basket where the vaccines only protect against an individual infection. But I don't have, you know, I don't really feel um heavily. I'm a geneticist and I don't feel like there's general concern that something would leak out in the into the environment. I think the investigators that are doing that are, are taking precautions to make sure that's not going to happen.
0: Okay. So let's let's talk about the vaccine piece because uh, a couple of weeks ago, Matt had a pretty feisty debate with one of our one of our guests about the vaccine piece. And um Matt made the argument that um I made the argument that he thought we were we were focusing way too much money and way too much, you know, way too much research dollars on, on a vaccine for one bacteria. Uh, and he said, you know, very much like you had argued, you know, Lyme disease is actually a polymicrobial infection. And even if we we're able to um, you know, persuade enough people to accept the vaccine and the environment that we're in. That um, that it's not going to have any impact on what really is causing the chronic illness, which is a the, this polymicrobial um, infection. And the response from from Dr. Ross was, well, you know, Borrelia plays a very important role in the impact that all of these germs are having, and if we're able to cut that one bacteria out. It may have a it may have a tremendous impact on the uh, the chronic presentation of this disease. What is, where do you fall on that?
2: So first, going back to what we said earlier, I'm a proponent of tools in the toolbox. The fatter toolboxes, the better. So I'd never say never to anything. We do have to make a decision about you know what's cost effective and what isn't. But I, I don't want to say out of hand that I reject the idea. My my principal criticism and you know. Docs and epidemiologists—they know this. I, they, I'm not telling. I'm not making any news here, but they don't always seem to remember the importance of vaccines and the importance of herd immunity. So we we hear a lot about herd immunity since COVID's come out. It, it's, it's kind of cool. We're we're epi, more epidemiologically sophisticated um, as a as a society in many ways. People that have been aware of and suffering from Lyme disease and other tick-borne infections were already there, but now everyone's sort of catching up with us. And one of the things you hear about when you hear about COVID is the need for herd immunity. And the idea is you if all three of us can't get vaccinated, for example, if I have a, 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 uh, an allergy to the vaccine, I can be protected because you and Matt are, are vaccinated and it's a benefit of herd immunity. There's no herd immunity by vaccinating people against Lyme disease because we are not the source of infection. So you keep vaccinating and you don't do anything to reduce the source because we are not the source. So if we should be vaccinating things, and I'm just throwing it out there as an idea, if we should vaccinate anything, we might wanna vaccinate the wild populations where you can actually get the benefit of herd immunity. And my, inclination would be more to attempt to vaccinate against tick bite rather than against any individual pathogen so that one simply effective vaccine would protect against a whole host of things that you can be exposed to and to administer those things to the things that are feeding
0: ticks in the wild and to gain the benefit of herd immunity all right that's that that's an exciting that's an exciting issue to discuss so Um, So you think if the if if we are going to be focusing on let's focus on human vaccines first, human vaccine focus should not be focused on a particular germ, it should be focused on the capacity of, of of the human to prevent the tick from being attached to it long enough to ultimately um, transmit these germs to us.
2: Except the first part that I said, the tools in the toolbox. So right. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not rejecting it out of hand. But to your point, like if all of our resources go into that one tool,
0: then we've not built a, an effective toolbox. Right. But also, I mean, and we we know we have limited resources, and you're you're a researcher, and you don't have unlimited, uh, you know, research dollars, right? They're, they're, you're you're constantly putting yourself in a position where you're trying to attract enough money to do the research that you want to do, and in many cases because of the political nature of of, of um, research dollars and the decisions that are being made about uh, where research dollars are going to be directed, um, you know we we should be having a conversation about what's the best use of those dollars. And yes, I, I I agree with you, we should have as broad a toolbox as possible. and yes we should have we should offer everybody as many tools as we possibly can. But in a world where we have limited resources and we and we have to direct those limited resources somewhere, where should we be directing our, our vaccine research dollars, I'm asking you? Should, do you think it's better served if we're, if we're researching tools that will stop attachment? Or do you think it's better to, um, to go down the path that we seem to be going down, which is attracting researchers who are focusing on a rap vaccine for one strain of one bacteria? I don't see it as a real dichotomy, but I also want to emphasize okay. that you're
2: thinking about publicly funded projects, and that doesn't preclude that there'll be commercial interests that want to develop these vaccines as well, and, and should maybe be accountable for maintaining that uh, development or, or, or handling those development costs.
0: Yeah, and, and, and I think what we're seeing is is that most of the commercial Um, most of the commercial focus is on one strain of one bacteria, right? I mean, we, you know, we heard about the Moderna recent, uh, you know, recently they, Moderna released their, uh, their uh, research uh, and Pfizer had, had theirs before the Pfizer seems to have walked, walked back some of the um, some of the uh, timelines that they were working with. But yeah, a a lot of this is also going to be driven by, by, um, you know, by um, who's going to be funding folks like you, not necessarily your lab, but labs like yours. Um, you know, uh, on the vaccine front, and yeah, I um, I think I think we should be focusing on something other than looking at one strain of one bacteria because we again we know there are many many strains. So why don't we why don't we broach that with you? Um, talk to us about the strains of uh, of of the bacteria and and the, so the various bacteria that you're studying. Are you seeing new strains of of the bacteria that you hadn't seen before? So talking about Borrelia strains, presumably. Yeah. So what's curious is
2: there's at least 16, maybe as many as 19 different variants of Borrelia burgdorferi in North America. And what's curious is that you find the same number of strains on average in a place like in upstate New York as you found in in Long Island, which sort of runs counter to how we think of the ecology of these things usually working. Usually there's a kind of founder effect so where places, in places where things are newly emergent, you'd expect to see some subset. And we've looked because we wanted to see what are the ones that get there first and maybe get established and make it possible for others to get established. We don't see evidence of that. We see evidence of all 16 or 19 different varieties basically everywhere that the ticks are present. What's interesting about that? there's evidence that only a subset of those 16 or 19 are infectious to us. So going back to what we talked about earlier, actually the same student, Pat Pearson, that did the work with the deer blood is actually about to publish another study where he's tried to answer a a question that's been around for quite some time, which is that the strains have letter designations. So there's type A, B, I, and K. They account for the vast majority of human infections. The other ones, C, H, G, et cetera, et cetera, they don't seem to be associated with human infection. So Pat's work was to try to figure out whether similar serum factors, as he saw in the deer blood study, are driving that thing, uh, driving that differential in, in the human bloods. And without giving too much of his story away, it doesn't seem like it's the same mechanism that's working against the the deer. So the question remains um, as to exactly what's doing this, but I guess to your point, there are multiple strains, only a subset of them are thought to be causing the preponderance of human disease. And so we wanna understand why that is, what it is about those individual strains
1: let me expand upon that a little bit because we recently had people reach out to us on social media when we did a post about various types of Borrelia and one of them was about Borrelia guarini and I may be mispronouncing that but that's I guess a strain of Lyme that exists primarily in Europe but we had a large number of people reach out and say hey look I've never left the northeast and I have that strain of Borrelia and I've tested positive for it so I guess the question I have for you Dr. Rich is do you think that there's a false belief that certain strains don't exist in certain geographic areas, and is that a false belief that's going to be causing people to get misdiagnosed if we're not looking for it, or I guess missing the you know the missing it all together if we're not looking for that strain in that certain area of the country?
2: Um, yeah, well, I don't know anything about the individual that was diagnosed with Borrelia grinii. I, I can tell you we've never found Borrelia grinii looking at several, now several hundred thousand ticks. In North America, so whether that person had a rare bite is hard to say. Whether it was a wrong wrong indication, wrong diagnosis, I, I don't know. Um, there are certainly, um, I hear, I hear anecdotal information about people that get diagnosed in uh, with Lyme disease in areas that aren't generally thought to be endemic. Um, you know um, the. Well, I don't want to go, go into any particular areas, but areas that we don't think that black-legged ticks are endemic, and so it it goes to the point that I think Matt or Rich brought up before that um, it it it's all about the definitions. So while there are people that are suffering from symptoms that are absolutely the symptoms of of, uh, of Lyme disease. Whether they're attributable to Borrelia burgdorferi transmitted by Exodia scapularis is what I, as a biologist, would question because we don't see evidence of ticks ticks living there.
1: Well, what about what about other other means of transmission? Congenital transmission, sexual transmission. Do you think those are the transmission mechanisms that somebody can acquire these other strains, even if they've never left the northeast, you know, portion of the United States, and now they've acquired a European strain, or do you think that the evidence is is not strong enough to indicate that?
2: There's not much evidence of that. It's not to say that it doesn't happen, but it's not what's driving epidemics. It's not what's driving the 400,000 cases of Lyme disease. Um, One, I've been a biologist long enough to say never say never, but to know to never say never, but that's not, focusing on those rare things is not going to be generally
0: helpful to the general public on how to protect themselves. So, Professor Richard, I'd like to talk to you about another thing that we have uh, discussed um, on this podcast in the past, and we have actually in what we call our Tick by Blueprint, which is on our website. We recommend after folks are bitten by a tick uh, and they do their tick checks, that if they find a tick, they send that tick to a lab to be tested. And now that is not always something that is supported by the CDC. So can you first talk about the CDC and their reaction to our recommendation about tick testing and what your thoughts are about whether or not it's wise for folks to um, to follow our advice and send their tick out to a lab to be tested?
2: So I think the CDC would be in agreement with you that there's value to understanding what a tick bite Um, the the nature of a tick bite, first of all, knowing the species, because not all species transmit all pathogens. Secondly, they would argue that it's valuable to know how long the tick is fed because they are proponents of the idea that ticks have to feed a length of time in order to transmit particular pathogens. Where there would be variances, the CDC feels there's nothing to be gained from understanding the the, uh, infection of that tick that just bit you, this infection status. And their argument is thus, that First of all, you can't rule out that another tick bit you that didn't get tested. And so you may be lured into a false sense of security, knowing that the tick that you tested is negative, but another tick that bit you actually gave you exposure and you could still be susceptible to disease. The other is they're a little bit concerned about the quality of the the laboratories that do the testing. They're not held to the same standards that, for example, a clinical um, testing laboratory would be held to And so the results may be misleading in that regard. So you may be told that you have some pathogen that you actually don't have, and if you haven't factored in the feeding time, et cetera, you could have had the threat present but not had sufficient exposure. So I think there's sensibility to what CDC's caution is. What I would push back on is that they seem to not acknowledge that there's any incremental uh, gain To be had from understanding the infection status of an individual tick, and I've I've argued—I'll go on record—I've argued with them that that produces a kind uh, of—it sort of question, at least a questionable authenticity. When you say it's important to know if it's the right species of tick, but it's not important to know if that particular tick is infected, and I would argue that that's a that's a that's a flawed logic in that it has to be at least incrementally beneficial to to know something about the infection. Yes,
0: our reaction to that is that they're just being paternalistic that you know that that I'm not, you know, capable of recognizing that the, the you know the microbes in the tick may or may not have been transmitted to me. Uh, And they may or may not be the only microbes that I'm harboring as a result of coming in contact with ticks in the past, right? I mean, so I I just think it's paternalistic and, 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 and they're just essentially taking the position that as somebody, you know, myself, who's been bitten by ticks many times and has sent this tick out to be tested many times, understands that there are limits to the testing, but there's value to having the information. And what's powerful is it puts that information in the hands of the individual
2: that was bitten by the tick and it changes conversations that take place between the provider. Now, providers might say, I don't want that conversation to change, but it empowers the person as long as it's as long as the test has been done properly, and as long as the communication about the results is done properly, then I think it's it's only information that can improve the situation.
0: Yeah, and, and look, we we have an onboard diagnostic system, right? We know what how we're feeling. We know what the symptoms are. And if we have a healthy relationship with the clinical practitioners we're working with, the more information we have that we can connect to our symptoms, the more we're going to be able to provide to the clinicians that we're working with who can help us to diagnose and treat whatever it is that we're dealing with.
2: And just... And- no matter what, how much disagreement there is about the long-term impacts of Lyme and the long-term effects of Lyme, everyone's in agreement that earlier treatment, earlier recognition and diagnosis is better than late. And in a circumstance where a vector is going to feed on you and you're not going to prove positive on a test for uh, two to three weeks after that, because that's how long it takes for the antibodies, then the earliest indication you can have of exposure lies within that exposure event.
0: Right. And it puts me in a position where I'll decide what prophylactic steps I'm going to take based on a conversation I'm going to have with my practitioner. Because I've been bitten by ticks several times over the last several years. And two years ago when I was bitten by a tick, I decided when I was working with my practitioner that I was going to take doxycycline. I decided last year when I was bitten by a tick again that I wasn't going to take dice. And part of the reason why I decided I wasn't going to take that and I was going to use herbals as a as a uh as a as a prophylactic approach is because the type of tick that had bitten me and the time it was attached. And what it ultimately tested positive for informed me about what it is that I wanted to to, to use. Now again, that's information I think as a patient I'm entitled to, and I think that's information that we should be encouraging patients to um, to uh, seek, not discourage. And I and, and I think the you know the the schizophrenic approach that the CDC is taking is discouraging rather than encouraging. Yeah, the other um, valuable information that come from those tick tests is that you,
2: in aggregate, you get real measures of risk because you're looking at who's getting bitten, where they're getting bitten, and what what uh, things are involved with that. And they acknowledge that in a recent publication where they talk about the utility of these aggregated passive surveillance efforts that tell us where, where these things are occurring. There really is very little tick-borne disease surveillance done looking at ticks. There's just not enough resource generally to to support that the way we have, for example, for mosquitoes. And so testing human biting ticks is, is is an effective way to surveil those things. That's how we found heartland virus, how we found bourbon virus on Long Island. We found other rare pathogens associated with different ticks in different parts of the country that we published.
0: Right, so that so although we can't get herd immunity by vaccines, we can have herd information when we're all collectively sending our ticks in to be tested, and that information is being shared uh with with governmental agencies and when researchers like you are publishing uh publishing your, your materials. It puts us all in a position where we now have more information and it puts us in a position where we can decide. As a matter of public policy, whether or not we're going to require educational, you know, educational people before they get hunting permits and those kinds of things. So all this information is really, really important. And I think the, you know, the 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 schizophrenic, again, my words, not yours, um, you know, recommendations of the CDC are, 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 are I think, um, uh, placed, uh, they're, they're, they're inappropriately placed. I, I think they're making mistakes by by um, not encouraging lab testing.
2: If you send your tick in to have it tested, Rich, that's very important information to you. The results of that tick test are not publishable. They're not interesting. They don't make it into a publication because
0: one tick is not important, but it could be very important to you, obviously. Right, so let's talk about labs, right? Because we 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 have uh, interviewed uh, folks who are running labs uh, in the past. Uh, again, because we advocate for tick testing, we do. Uh, I got on a high bat. Uh, and one of the things that quite frankly attracted us to you um, is is that you also have a uh, have a private lab for tick testing. So can you talk to us about your your private laboratory and and what type of testing is available if folks decide that they wanted to work with uh, your lab. If
2: I could just tell you a little bit about the history of how we got to that stage. So Please. I, when we came to UMass in 2006, I moved my laboratory here. We were approached by Agricultural Extension and they asked us if there's anything that they could help us to do. So I suggested to them that one thing we could tell people is if they wanted to have their ticks tested for pathogens that they could send them to our laboratory. We had all the tools in place. We were already testing. Hundreds of ticks for you know NIH sponsored research that we're doing, and we just thought you know people wanted to utilize it, and we made it a fee for service because there was no other way for us to do it, Um, and we we advertised it. And I think in that first year we got something like seventy ticks sent to us, mostly within driving distance of our campus here. Over years that built up, and we started testing more pathogens. We realized that people valued what you're saying that um, individual exposure information and we, while where I was initially thinking there was no value to it myself, as I saw the data come out and I saw the stories and I realized the uh, the engagement opportunity, someone sends us a tick and they want it tested and we test it and we give them back the results. <laughs> they will listen to our advice on how to avoid a, a, the next tick bite much more clearly than they would if they read a brochure. Absolutely. Parents pulling their ticks off the kids in the middle of the night, sending the tick in, we can tell them, think about these things, keep the kid on the grass, you know, don't keep the playground, know, do all these different things that you can do. So we realized it's a very powerful tool and we hoped that in time, departments of public health or CDC would sort of pick this up and, and underwrite these things because these are fee-for-services and, um, and, and we offered it here as a fee-for-service for several years. Eventually it just became unmanageable to, to continue to do that work at the university. It just wasn't a good fit. Um, it was um you know because it has a fee for service it's a it's a it is a for-profit entity and so we privatized it so we created a company that does the same service that we gave the, at the university for several years we um, do it under licensing agreement with the University of Massachusetts and we do the same thing that we've always done which is take those profits as it were and we roll them back into improving the test testing new pathogens and pushing out the information so that all of the data that's collected from from our laboratory uh, um, from this product tick report is pushed back out into the passive surveillance network that everyone can go on and utilize but i have to emphasize that it is a private entity i'm a i'm an owner of it it's not it's not associated with the university any longer, except that the license, the, the uh, university licenses to use that product.
0: So can you tell us about tick report and how many different pathogens can be tested uh, if someone decided they wanted to purchase that service?
2: So we test for, I think it's 22 different pathogens now, um, and we do them as packages. So we that's one of the things we did to keep the cost down uh, for the people that were testing ticks. So initially we were doing it sort of as a large menu of things, and then we started grouping things into uh, into sets. So every tick gets tested for Borrelia anaplasma and babesia, every black legged tick. And then we have other packages that we include like for the rarer Powassan virus, bourbon virus, et cetera. And then we even offer like a, a, a comprehensive package that tests for all
0: 22 of those pathogens in the ticks. So um, would you be able to share with us, um, either online or offline, how folks could, um, could get in touch with uh, uh, your lab and purchase the service?
2: Yeah, well, the first thing I would tell people to do is go to www.tickreport.com slash stats. Maybe that's a lot of words for people. Maybe you could flash it up on the screen or something. Um, and what they'll see there is they can enter their own zip code and they can see what's been submitted from their own zip code. They can see the types of species of ticks that are being transmitted. They can look at pictures of ticks and they can get some idea of if they've just had a, a tick bite that they're that they're trying to reconcile, they can have some idea on what the risks are of that tick bite before they even send it to us. And from there, they can launch into, there's a, a, a a chat line where people can access 24 hour chat line where they can ask questions about their tick bite, um, including sending pictures of the tick where, believe it or not, a certain percentage of the time people send us ticks that turn or send us pictures that turn out not to be ticks. They're either seeds or little specks of dust or um, sometimes beetles. And so sometimes we can answer people's question right away. That's not a tick. Move on to worrying about something else or worrying about the next exposure you have. So www.tickreport.com and the stats in particular are a
0: very useful place to start. Dr. Now, can you give us? I'm sorry, Matt. I have one more question. Um, it, preserving the tick is significant to your capacity to test the tick, right? Because sometimes people will take ticks and they'll put them in certain solvents, and they think they'll be preserving it. Or not. So, can you talk about what's the best way of preserving the tick so that when they send it to you, it will be um, it will be um, in a condition where it can be tested? Yeah, we, we had a campaign several years ago,
2: we, we called it Save the Ticks. And we said, no, we're not, we're not calling for you to, to save the ticks. We want you to keep your tick and, and, and keep it um, as a record of your past exposures. The best way, the best way to preserve the tick is just to keep it live. So if you can put it in a, in a plastic Ziploc bag, and the reason is the contents of that tick are most easily preserved if the tick remains alive. So push off the temptation to wanna smush it or or flush it, keep it live and send it to us live. That gives us the best assurance of being able to detect the viruses and pathogens inside it. The other thing um, that you could do is you could freeze it, but then we have to sort of keep it in a a frozen chain um, throughout and the best way to preserve it. The last thing in the world you want to do is throw something like Clorox on it, which will destroy the DNA, which is the um, target that we use to test the presence of the pathogens. Ethanol is okay, so rubbing alcohol, but the preferred is to send
0: it live.
1: So, Dr. Rich, I I want to follow up on your dashboard, right, because, again, it's tickreport.com slash stats, and we're going to put a link in the show notes for sure for everybody to go check it out. And first of all, kudos on a really easy-to-use, visually compelling dashboard. I mean, I didn't even know this existed, and I can't wait to geek out even further on this after doing a couple of clicks already. But you break down, like in our community, for example, obviously Borrelia rice and Sulatu is the, the most commonly positive test that you run on ticks, Then anaplasma and the We're not surprised by that. But you break up the category, so you have a Borrelia gen- general species and then a Borrelia sensu sensulato species. So can you just explain for our listeners, if they're on your dashboard, what that difference is between Borrelia Borgdorferi sensulato and Borrelia general species? Because here on Long Island, their Borrelia general species actually has a higher positive rate than Borrelia burgdorferi sensulato.
2: So your point about Borrelia grinii earlier in the conversation, the reason we do that, we do two tests. One t- will basically detect any kind of Borrelia. So all the brellias in the universe, including Borrelia that haven't yet been identified, believe it or not. How do you do that? Because we're targeting conserved uh, pieces of DNA and the stuff that differentiates between them lies between those conserved targets. Wow. And so we do that so that we can theoretically capture things that are are novel. And then we do a second test to just determine that it's the, t- the Borrelia that are associated with, um, with, with Lyme disease, or Borelia associated with Borelia I relapsing fever or Borelia Lone star eye, which is associated with Lone Star ticks. We break it down that way. In the future, what we're hoping to do is to be able to also provide genotyping data. So I mentioned those 19 strains. We have methods where we can type the, the method, uh, type the, the strain that's inside that individual tick. We're just trying to find a way to make it affordable and, and scalable to the, to the people that might wanna utilize that service.
1: So, is the sensu lato, and I'm, I know I'm butchering the names here, but so like obviously we know about Borrelia miyamotoi. It's very popular in the Lyme community. Is Borrelia miyamotoi a part of that sensulato grouping, or is that part of the general species grouping?
2: It's part of the general species group. So, sensu lato just means broad sense. Uh, sensu stricto means strict sense. Those are both applied to the set of Borrelia burgdorferi that are associated with Lyme disease. So, Borreliaceae. S- <laughs> maybe more detail than we want to get into, but sensu stricto includes things that are strictly called Borrelia burgdorferi. Sensu latu includes Borrelia burgdorferi plus Borrelia garinii plus of fcelii, the European strains.
1: I did not know that. That was That's very helpful to know. Thank you for that. So in, you know, how you're testing these ticks, let's kind of compare and contrast to blood testing. If, if I were to go to LabCorp core Quest, and get a blood test, you know, standard for my primary care physician to test for Lyme disease. What are they looking for? Are they looking for senso stricto, sensu sensu lato, or are they looking for this whole, you know, Borrelia general species? You know, what's happening? And it seems like we're getting far more detail in testing the tick. It's more accurate as well. But I'm also thinking we're getting less, we're looking for even less things when we're looking at the human body. Never mind, it's even less accurate than testing the tick, right?
2: Yeah, most human body testing is looking at evidence of your body's reaction to the infection. So the antibodies, for example, that your body has mounted to that infection. And then the inference is the presence of those antibodies means that there was or is an infection. Our tests actually look at the DNA. So they're, first of all, they can be more targeted. And as I mentioned before, with these conserved primers, you can cast a broader net if you wish but they have the accuracy of being specific for what you're what you're actually searching for.
1: But I wonder if I'm getting a blood test, is that antibody response also going to identify Borrelia miyamotai and the other strains we discussed or just Borrelia burgdorferi? It
2: depends on the test. I, I mean, we'd have to look at the particulars, but yeah, sometimes monoclonal antibodies or sometimes antibodies in particular can uh, cross-react with different proteins
1: so I just really want to encourage everybody one last time before virtue picks back up to go check out your website, tickreport.com slash stats, because I'm already learning so much just by reading this and just now asking you questions about it. I mean, this is the most powerful tick disease and tick testing dashboard we've seen on this podcast. And it's really, really cool to be able to now have this and share it with our community. So thank you for that.
0: So I, I, I'm going to only ask you a few more questions. I will keep you on for hours and hours being the uh, tick the, the geek that I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'd like to talk about tick checking. Um, and we, we, uh, we talk about tick checks and the importance of tick checks. And, you know, Matt has often referred to me on this podcast as, um, as a line magnet. And he keeps telling everybody that I just attract ticks. No, no, not a line magnet,
1: a tick magnet.
0: I'm sorry, a, a tick magnet. I apologize. I am a tick magnet. Uh, and, and, and I, and I, and I, and I debate with Matt about it all the time because I don't think I'm a tick magnet. I think I'm a tick checker. I check for ticks all the time. And because I tech check for ticks all the time, I find ticks on me. All the time, right now the argument could be made is I, I live on Long Island and I have dogs and you know and 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 I'm 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 just coming in contact with them more often. Or the argument can be made we're all getting bitten by ticks all the time and I'm just finding them because I check all the time. I literally check in the morning when I take off my clothes and go in the shower. I check my entire body by running my fingers across my body everywhere before I go to bed. I take all my clothes off and I before I put my my pajamas on. I I I, I take check as well. Now, can you talk to us about the importance of tick checking and how you'd recommend that folks tick check? I think you've got it right.
2: Check at least twice a day. There's times when you're when you're changing clothing. It's a, it's a game changer. The ability to find and pull the tick off is the fundamental so is a fundamental solution to preventing um, bad outcomes from tick exposures from tick bites. And it's sometimes harder for bigger people or older people to see all parts of their body. So do what you can if you have to employ a mirror or uh, you have a buddy or, but certainly, um, you know, check your kids and check your check your pets and, and make it part of your game, make it part of your what your activities are. You know, I don't, I would debate whether you're actually older than me, but we remember a time when we'd go outside without putting sunscreen on. We never think about doing that anymore. This is the same thing. We now you grew up with ticks. I didn't grow up with ticks. I now know that checking for ticks is part of my daily cycle.
0: Do you have any specific recommendations about how to check check the ticks? I mean, you did indicate that you should check your entire body. And obviously, people, you know, bigger people are going to be going to they're gonna they're they're gonna be more folds, right? Because part of what's happening when a tick bites you is it's crawling up and it's trying to find a fold in your body, right? That's why we see we find so many people like Matt he found a tick biting him, you know, at, at his belt level. We A lot of the people we've interviewed who are female and wear bras, they would find it in the bra strap. We had a, a young man recently who was heavily muscled and, it was, and he had a tight shirt and it was under his shirt, but they're always looking for folds. So bigger people are going to have more folds and there's going to be more places where ticks are going to be located. So can you give us some recommendations about uh, because of ticks looking for folds, how folks may want to focus on some areas a little bit more than others perhaps? You said it better than I usually, I usually say
2: that people should check where their body forms a Y. So under their arms and their groin, as you say, like any place where there's folds, any place where where your clothing is restricted, so like belt lines, strap lines, wherever there's a tight linkage between the clothing and the skin, that just seems to be a sweet spot for ticks to uh, nudge their way in, and they just they're able to make attachment. They're able to go unnoticed because that's the part of the clothing that that's usually covered more. Um, so check those places: belt lines, socks. Um, if you're using, if you're thinking about acaricides um, or keep thinking about things like permethrin, make sure you're not just treating your pants. Treat your socks and treat your shoes, and make sure you keep them off because. I want to take away one bit of, 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 um, you certainly know this, but maybe not all your listeners know that ticks don't jump from trees. They don't fly. They don't uh, fall out of trees. They start almost always at the bottom of of you and they crawl up you. And so you should check your body that way. Start at your feet, go up to the parts that form a Y until you get to the top of your head and use a mirror if you need
0: to, to see the backs of your back of your body. Let's talk about the senses you should be using for a tick check, right? Because ticks are really small, and we've talked about how little they are, and how although we are visual beings as humans, and 70% of the information we receive is from our eyes, it's not the best way of that, that's not the primary sense or the best sense that we should be using when we're doing tick checks. So, can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, so. Matt pointed out earlier, like you rub your you rub your hands around and you find the ticks because they are little protuberances on your body that wouldn't otherwise be there, and so you can feel the
0: spots that you may not be able to see, and that can help to find the ticks as well. All right, because our, our 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 fingertips, at least the the first four fingertips, it's our thumb, our first finger, second finger, and half our third finger are the are uh, the are uh, the locations where the Median nerve uh, are located, and that's the most sensitive part of our body, right? So we can receive that information. It's also known as the, you know, the eye of the hand, right? So it's it, it's 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 how we will ultimately find, uh, we'll we'll find the ticks, correct?
2: I wasn't aware of the eye of the hand, but yeah, I, that's a great
0: great way to put it. All right, so let's talk about early intervention. Final set of questions we're going to ask you and I, you know, we we've you've been very generous with your time. Let's talk about the let's talk about the um early intervention, right? Because you've argued repeatedly on this podcast that early intervention is the key to success when when dealing with this. So, if we if we avoid coming in contact with ticks, um that's wonderful, right? If we if we ultimately um do come in contact with ticks and we're checking ourselves and we find the uh, find the uh a tick. The earlier we find it, the more likely it is that we're going to keep ourselves safe because it's not going to be attached long enough. And of course, we've now talked about how to remove the tick and how to properly remove the tick. Make sure you're washing your hands if you're pulling it off with your hands because Dr. Rich has now taught us that you can get sick, or you can, you know, you can, you can get a disease from touching a tick if it if it, open, it opens up. So we have to keep ourselves clean, keep our, our tools clean. Now let's talk about early intervention, right? We talked about testing the ticks, so we have some information. Uh, what are your recommendations for early intervention after somebody has found a tick that has been feeding on them? Well, I think you, you said
2: most of them. So I, I think it's important to think of every tick exposure as a story, as a storyline with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And that throughout that process, you have the ability to interrupt it from advancing to the next chapter. So if you can, you said it well, if you can keep the ticks off you, hey, you're doing great. If If they're not on you, they're clearly not posing a risk to you. If you miss one and it gets on you, well, just get it off as quickly as you can. Ticks spend a, non- a fair amount of time walking around in your body, looking for those spots where you have a belt line or whatever to, before they attach. If you can get them before that, again, you've probably reduced your your risk almost to zero. Even if they've attached, attach them off, uh, pull them off as quickly as you can, because there is this trajectory of the movement of the pathogens out of the tick and into you. And the earlier you do that, the better, even if you fail there and you end up with a tick that's fed fully and then fallen off onto your couch or your blanket, you can still take precautions. You can have the tick tested, or you can just keep the tick aside and watch the site to make sure there's, see if there's any unusual rashes, the telltale erythema migraines of Lyme disease, which it's questionable how many people actually get it, but it's worth watching for that. Um, and then get treated, go and get um, as treated, treated as early as you can after you show signs of illness, a, a febrile illness or otherwise. I think the worst thing is for people to just be, first of all, terrified to, to go outdoors because they're afraid of that first step and even more so to be terrified if they've had an exposure because it's it's not the it's, it, it, it's certainly a danger, but it's not the end of the world and there are things that you can do actively to 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 prevent that from turning out worse. And don't be fearful because we never make our best decisions when we're fearful. Fear is great when we're running away from lions. It's not great when we're trying to protect ourselves from tick bites. We need to make informed decisions about the next steps.
0: Dr. Rich, I can't thank you enough for first joining us on this podcast and being really generous with uh, a couple of hours of your time. And I'm, I'm going to just follow up and I'll let Matt thank you as well. But we, we did thank you offline for all the work that you're doing and the practical approach that you and the folks at your lab are taking, because people, as we know better than anyone, are having their lives ruined by Lyme disease. And it's because of folks like you who are not just curious and doing research, but doing very practical research and bringing that into the community that's that that's causing people to have the information they need so their lives will not be ruined. So we can't thank you enough for the work that you're doing and the work that you're doing with your students at your lab. Well, I have to thank you for helping us to translate this. It's, it's fundamentally important what you
2: guys are doing, taking it out of the egghead zone and getting it out to people that can actually utilize this
0: information. So you're to be commended for that, for sure. Thank you for listening to your Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Professor Stephen Rich. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Professor Rich and the work that he's doing, please visit the University of Massachusetts Amherst website. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of your Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick by Blueprint. It has been inspired by information, but shared with us by past guests on this podcast. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com forward slash byte to view the blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of your Tick Bootcamp podcast. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on the podcast platform of your choice. And finally, if you'd like to search our podcast library of over 350 episodes, subscribe to our email list or share feedback, please visit our website at tickbootcamp.com. Thank you, as always, for listening.